So today we've got Kianga Ford. Uh, any relation, Harrison Ford, or no? No, badly. Mm, no, <laughs> different continent. Uh. <laughs> so um, yeah, Kianga and I, we've been, uh, I don't know, playing uh, inter-hemispheric calendar tag for the last, what, three weeks? Uh, we started out on WhatsApp, you know, which was really cool, but you know, it, it's unstable WhatsApp now because of Zuckerberg. And, uh, you know, so then we went to good old Gmail and, um, and yeah, we just found it impossible to line up. We booked this a thousand times. We actually recorded, we recorded a, um, a podcast before, but it was unusual. Um, yeah, unusual and unusable because, uh, unfortunately, Kianga has like, a, a sort of, a I don't know, a high powered listening skill that, that that causes you to um just like overshare and rant for an hour so anyway i'm, I'm blaming her for that for my <laughs> you know just basically gushingly mansplaining my life um for an hour and a half last time we spoke and uh we're gonna we're gonna take another run at it um <laughs> i had a good time yeah uh, basically kyunga um works with people in in gender stuff and so um, we first uh, started, when we first started talking, we were talking about cults because um, Kianga had come out of um, some kind of really interesting clitoris cult and sort of emerged from that cocoon into the world of, uh, into the world of helping people sort of, uh, you know, get over their weird gender stuff, um, which is really cool. So anyway, I'm hoping she's going to, help us all get over our weird gender stuff in, in this one. Got some really good ideas. Um, no idea what we're going to say, but off we go. Um, we just, uh, we were just doing a little ritual together. We're both on our bouncer balls. So we were bouncing in unison and we're doing it again. Now, this is good because I see her doing this. She sees me doing this and we go, ah, this person's just like me. I will do well here. And that's of course how all ceremony starts. Um, but then, you know, you scale that up to 50 people and you end up with something pretty magical happening. So everybody bounce up and down. We're going down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. With the latency. Ah, it's it's go. very good, isn't it? Ah. <laughs> yeah. Hello. We're good now. Hello, That's sister. Awesome. <laughs> hey, I see you. <laughs> Greetings from Turtle Island. Hey. Also bouncy. <laughs> Bouncing on Turtle Island. I wonder if this is really happening like this or like am I because uh, we're in time over the zoom but is that is that real like actually on the other side of the world 
Are we not in time? Uh, I'm not sure. Who knows? Your bounce anyway. is like 13 hours ahead of mine. Well, this <laughs> you're this, bouncing this, in the future. I am. I'm bouncing into the future, and you're bouncing into the past. <laughs> Somewhere in the middle is now, and uh, yeah, let, let's bounce. Well, no, let's bounce in about an hour. And um, sorry, we've just gone down a wormhole now of time. <laughs> Yeah. It's good for me. Yeah. So, so do we want to start with the cults thing? <laughs> Isn't that always the first question you want to be yeah. asked? I, I'm, well, I, 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 we started because I was like complaining to you that a couple of cults have started up that are, uh, are using some of my writing as their Bible. And it's sort of worrying me. There's people with compounds out in the desert, like freaking doing weird stuff. And like they're sending me emails like, you know, oh, it's, it's terrifying. I'm like, no, no, that's the wrong way. Don't, don't do that. It's uh, funny. Like that's not the disclaimer that you usually imagine having to put in your book, right? And like the preface, yeah. Right? Yeah. like this is not, and uh, what would it be? Like an affirmation for your cult. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, oh, and but you know, usually if you do see that disclaimer, like beware, because all gurus, like all gurus, say I am not a guru. Tony Robbins, like <laughs> I am not your guru. But anyway, and now I'm deploying a whole heap of guru tricks to get you to give me five thousand dollars. Um, yeah, actually, Tony Robbins is pretty cool, but uh, but still a guru. Yeah, but they all say I'm not your guru, mm. so I'm, I'm not going to say that. I'm just going to say go away. Just go, just go away. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> but you, you, you've been, you've been inside a cult, so you know how that works. That's really funny. I kind of laughingly call it a cult, but it is actually legitimately on the FBI cult watch list. So it's not oh just my like God tongue-in-cheek calling it a cult but I had a great time yeah kind of like I said when we talked I love a good cult it takes a strong mind to be able to come in and out of countercultural ideas at will right to kind mm. of understand the mechanisms of um, both indoctrination and expansion so why is the FBI so terrified of the clitoris is it because they can't find it um <laughs> Is it like WMDs in Iraq or what's going on? Right. Well, I mean, basically, they're just concerned about anything that goes against like the the dominant in such a way that it seems like it could have impact. Mm. And what I learned in my life in clitoral stroking was that women who are really turned on are a powerful force in a way that is totally different than what we imagine when we talk about sort of the allowed structures of female power, mm. right? Like women who are in their embodied feminine in that way, turned on, connected to not just the clitoris, but pleasure overall, are talking to nature, are healing the planet, are doing active work, are changing the vibration that we live in. It's no joke. Oh my goodness, right? power without aggression is such a thing possible. It is, right? Like, I mean, I think that's one of the really interesting things about feminine power. And one of the reasons that so many women don't approach 
the feminine is because they think it's a disempowered position. Right? We have this, this supposition of a hierarchy where the masculine is on top, right? Where that kind of directness is more valid, more valuable, more viable. And so one of the things I work with is how many women are moving and living in a masculine modality, thinking mm. that's the only way to be effective. Mm. Right? But I work with women to go all the way to the other side, not just touching the feminine or like behaving in a cultural template of the feminine, but finding like the, the, the depth of their own pleasure and power. Mm. And that's, that's something altogether different. <laughs> It's not a, uh, how much of that is biological and how much of it is cultural? So in the way that I work with the masculine and feminine, it's not biologically dependent, right? It's like correlated, but not absolute. Mm. So we all have masculine and feminine components um, and we express them. We express that relationship in a way that's unique to us. Mm. Right? So we all have it, but we've been working culturally such that most women are eschewing the feminine because they don't think it's where they're going to get power and success. And a lot of men increasingly are eschewing the masculine because it's under attack. It seems seem to be um, the source of the problem, mm. right? So we're kind of both collectively moving away from the places where we have the greatest amount of both power and potential for contribution. Mm. It's, um, I mean, that's that, I mean, it's, it's really, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a weird definition of masculinity. And I know there's that, there's that idea of toxic masculinity out there. Um, but it's almost like, I mean, I think it's almost like market market masculinity, <laughs> if that makes any sense. You know, um, like I think the sort of economic structures that we're living within, you know, they demand a certain kind of um, uh, rivalrous dynamic. Yeah. And women are encouraged to, well, you, you've got to be covertly rivalrous and um, gossipy and bitchy and, and that's how you're allowed to express that. And males, you're allowed to express it this way. <laughs> And this is how you're supposed to do it. And if you don't do it that way, then you're excluded. Um, yeah. Yeah. But the whole system is based on masculine values, right? So it's one of the things that we haven't been able to understand in the whole <clears throat> equity parity paradigm, right? Yeah. Because it's just like the, the emphasis has been on getting women access, but not on what's the underlying culture of the thing. And the yeah. underlying culture of the things are masculine. See, but in, I mean, in, in my home culture, masculinity looks very different though. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it, it is really different. Um, you know, in, and in, I know if you go to Asia, you'll find masculinity looks different. Um, you know, if it, there's, I mean, and there's a lot of European cultures as well, where, you know, you go there and, and two men who are friends are walking down the street, holding hands, you know, um, and have a very different relationship, you know, to women, to children, to everything else. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think this, this weird masculinity that we're talking about, it, it belongs, you know, very specifically to that weird, uh, 
that weird minority culture that has sort of set the um, the sort of uh, structure of rivalrous incentives, you know, in the world. Yeah, it's um, not weird. Sorry, being Western educated, industrialized, rich, democratic, you know, that that one. Yeah, I don't think it's actually that the the masculine. I think the masculine itself is something deeper than the sort of specific expression that it has in that place in the West that you're talking about, in the Western mind that you're talking about. That's um, like rivalry is not inherent to the masculine, mm. right? But a focus on like production or producing results, seeing the end goal, setting direction, those are things that come from the masculine. Yeah. So the way that it shows up, I mean, I'm always looking for models that um, check or correct or expand or explode the one that I'm working with. Mm. I've been working with men and men and women from around the world and looking so far what I understand about like the core of the spiritual law of gender has a consistency across place and across culture, even though um, the expression can be different mm. right sort of like the the it's more like the rules for living yeah. are different. so the social and cultural context can really mm, significantly impact the way it's expressed mm. but i don't think that i don't think that i would say we in the west because this is definitely where i grew up and you know i've been in um sort of a framework of of western even canonical thinking for a long time. Um, I don't think we're operating from something different, right? I think we're operating from something devolved and misunderstood. Yeah. So a lot of the work that I do is to help us understand what is the real thing underneath the way it's been expressing, right? Mm. Underneath the toxicity, underneath... Um, the, the sort of limiting systems that it's created, right? Mm. Masculinity and patriarchy, for instance, are not even related. Yeah. yeah. Ah, that's interesting. Although one is deployed and weaponized within the other, perhaps. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and sort of twisted and bizarrely mutated. Um, yeah, so you so you're saying like uh, you're talking about you, you know growing up and inhabiting a Western frame, mm-hmm. um, you know so um, and so yes you're you're a colonist you're a um, a settler uh, there in on Turtle Island um, you're potentially a, a, a settler colonist you know settler colonialism <laughs> that sort right. of thing since they uh, cut off from the mothership there. Um, but you, you're an involuntary settler, so you, you're coming from a, a diaspora from another continent, and um, and that informs a lot of the values, you know, um, of the community that you've come from as well. So how much how much of that do you think is influencing the way you're working with this and and your ability to have perspective on it? Yeah. I mean, the answer is probably not where you think it is. If for anybody that's listening to this on only audio, I am a black American woman. <laughs> so it's, um, 
sort of unusual for us to get called settlers or colonists, but I totally understand the oh, in, involuntary. You're an involuntary so settler, so it's I uh, get that. Yeah, it's like you didn't you didn't like buy a ticket. <laughs> you know, did yeah. not. But also, part of my family history is also Native American. Hey, right? true God. And so it's um. And in the way that that's very complex with African-Americans, I can't trace that back to a particular location, right? Mm. It, it comes as an awareness devoid of a specific culture, yeah. right? There are no practices. There's no um, directly passed down wisdom. There's just this blood that makes people look at my face and go, huh, <laughs> right? <Okay>. Like, huh. <laughs> and so like the way that I think that that um, complex perspective has me look at this subject is um, very much informed by things like race, right? For me, race is entirely a cultural construct mm. where the sort of mm, the sort of universal principle, and I'm always wary of using universal principles, but I use this one very deliberately, of gender is primary. It exists in nature. It exists in all of us. We are expressing these complementary things all the time, mm. right? It's like the foundation of creation. You need these two parts that basically play two different roles in the human sort of biological animal. Um, but more than the biological animal, the sort of spiritual element of creation relies on this two-ness coming together, right? Yeah. On this, these things coming from two distinct mm. perspectives or ways of approach. Two-ness, we, we use that word too. Mm. We, How do you because, use it? Well, I mean, anthropologists would say a, a dyad. Mm -hmm. We'll call it a dyad rather than a binary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so we don't uh, follow those binaries so much as you know it's two sides of one coin. Um, yeah, there's a unity there in a, in twoness, and all of our relations are like that. That's us, like us two, you and I are like um, coming into relation by bouncing up and down on <laughs> on our balls <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> at the start. It was, uh, you know, that that was that. Uh, that's you know, and that's creating that. It's creating that bond, and that uh, where it's it's no longer, you know, you as one person, and then me as one person. It's but we we are a two. Like we have that two-ness, and sort of that's the basis of you know the structure of all kinship systems and governance models and economies. You know, traditionally. Uh, not just but for us, but but uh, for all humans um, as well, not so long ago. Yeah. I love that. I love listening to the book and uh, the us two, which is not a phrase that we have, but I really enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, it's an attempt at a translation of, of, of words from um, um, Aboriginal languages, you know, our, yeah. our, our weird pronouns. Yeah, we got some pronouns going on. Heaps more pronouns than in English. Um, yeah, well, we're expanding, so there you go. <laughs> yeah, you get more pronouns. You're every expanding, day. <laughs> but I mean, completely the other direction. I mean, we. Um, so in my language, there's no gendered pronouns. Everybody is. <clears throat> everybody's nil slash non, male or female. So, 
There's no gendered pronouns, but there's plenty of pronouns for the different kind of relationships uh, that you have and the different kinds of groups of people uh, would be coming together. Mm. So there's the us two, uh, us only, us all, you know, uh, me, me, myself, um, you know, you, you two, you all, you belonging to them, you belonging to him or her, <laughs> you know, there's all of those things. So all your pronouns are all about situating you in, um, you know, in relation. Um, and then, you know, everything that, and then there's information that has to come after that, that situates you as to where you are, <laughs> your location, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of cool. Beautiful, complex. <clears throat> and I think but I started... English is uh, expanding, expanding, yeah. expanding out in the in the gender pronouns. Uh, as yes. a starting point. Yes. Uh huh. I mean, that's it's that's a whole own yarn in the field of complexity, right? Like yeah. What's happening with gender pronouns these days? But I think it's I started going down that track, thinking a little bit about how race plays into this, right? And like, <clears throat> what's the difference in a universal principle and um, the kind of more of a, of a modern epistemology, right? Mm. Which I think race is being quite different than culture. But one of the things that it's allowed me to see is how we basically project ideas onto other people. Right? And how in doing that, we understand and more likely misunderstand where they're coming from. Who does this person think I am was a great starting point for me to begin to understand how much misunderstanding we have about the way the masculine and feminine interrelate. Mm. And again, not biological sex, but just sort of two ways of being. Like mm. it's, it's like the side of giving and the side of receiving, You're right? They're two sides of the same coin, but they don't operate in the same way. And so if you measure the side of giving on the criteria of receiving, it seems like giving is constantly failing Yeah, and vice versa. So it just has really sort of helped me come into a place of understanding how we project wrongness and we project like misunderstanding onto people based on a sense of difference that often mm, doesn't come from any more core understanding. Mm. So what kind of core understanding could we work with around um, maybe spiritual gender at this level that would help us relate differently, be more fully self-expressed as who we are, right? Mm. And I, I often talk about working with this at the street level because, you know, you and I both come from academic backgrounds. I went rogue and left the academy because I wanted to be able to talk to everyday people in the course of their everyday lives. Um, and there's a way that doing street level work with this does require that you go into some of the understanding of maleness and femaleness too. Mm. Right, without creating new templates. So I do help women understand how the masculine and feminine are playing out for them. And I help men understand how it's playing out for them in a way that might be different, right? Mm. But in each person, you're looking for 
that internal complementarity that becomes mm. the template for our relational complementarity. If you can't understand the interplay of it inside you, yeah. it's really hard to understand it in relationship to someone else. Mm. Well, we've, um, <clears throat> I guess we've just passed each other on our way in and out um, of the academy because I, I have the same story, except when I went rogue, I went rogue and entered the academy. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Everybody has their own path, right? Yeah. So, so I, I went rogue from from the landscape and community, and um, and into the academy. Um, you know, I, it's just it, I think I've got at least another five years before I shed all of that uh, properly and become a uh, a creature of the of <laughs> the academic world, like an actual scholar. But um, yeah, I think I'll be done with it before then, though. <laughs> I just got got some things I need to do in here and um and and then I'm going back. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll look out for you out here in the Bronx. Yeah, out I'll in the, the real yeah, I'll, I'll be I'll be back in the real world soon. <laughs> I, I mean I grew up in the academy. Really. I started working on my PhD when I was 22. I went to college when I was 16. I was very much inside the sort of institutional model. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I didn't have a way of thinking like that's when I say like Western canonical thought. I literally went to a PhD program that was about the history of Western thought, basically, mm-hmm. and the evolution of that history. So that was very, very deeply my training and my perspective, um, my kind of um, inquisitive disposition for a long time. And it was only coming out (laughs) through my great cult experiences in conscious sexuality and coming into more of a, a spiritual inquiry on the other side of it that I can even totally be able to see like the specificity of wearing that cloak of, of the Western canon. Yeah. Well, I think a lot, so a lot of your work seems to be almost as a healer, you know, so people, it seems they're coming to you with wounds. Um, yeah. What, don't what, we all have them? <laughs> what, what are those wounds? Oh yeah. Um, well, I, I imagine there's a whole heap of different kinds of pathologies going on there. There are. And one of the ones that I like to talk about because I think people don't really see it is um, the particular wound in the masculine that is leading to masculine collapse. Mm. And so right now there's so much, there's so much conversation about toxic masculinity, which is really frustrating to me, the conversations around toxic masculinity, because masculinity is just its own thing. And toxic is just an adjective to describe one particular expression or iteration of that thing. It's like yellow flour doesn't make all flowers yellow. Rotten food doesn't make all food rotten. Mm. But in, in the way that we're kind of going about trying to make space for women to begin and then hopefully eventually for the feminine there's been such a a shaming and a blame pointing to the masculine that a lot of men are going to great lengths to disidentify with the thing they think is the problem Mm. so there's a lot of sort of 
being a lived apology. Like mm. you can literally see it in the posture. Like, I'm so sorry. I exist as a problem. Mm. And that shows up in relationship um, with really impossible dynamics. Yeah. Right. If you are in a sort of a heterosexual relationship, if you're a woman and you're seeking partnership and you're also seeking professional success, you will not get very far with a man who is like so contracted on himself that he can't set direction, that he can't um, kind of penetrate the world with his energy. Right. right. So you end up with women that then take on more masculinity to compensate for the fact that their partners are trying to eschew and dump and get rid of that masculinity. Mm. And then, yeah, you just end up sort of like what we call like reversed polarities. Right. And it's because basically both people are adapting, both sides are adapting for, um, Mm, sort of situational success, right? Mm. Rather than being able to go into their core strengths. Like, who are you as a person and, and what are you here to share and express? Mm. Right? When I talk about it, I talk about the feminine holding a wisdom and the masculine holding purpose. Um, and that doesn't equate to all men have purpose and all women have wisdom. Right, but it's about finding that right internal balance for us of understanding, like, okay, where do we sit um, personally, individually? I was such a driving masculine force when I came into this work. I ran a fine art program in New York City, and most of the men in my world worked for me or reported to me in some way. Right, I was very much in like action results like give do penetrate i had very little capacity or understanding that had been cultivated for um the more receptive the more experiential and i'm not saying women should all be there's no should in here right mm. should all be more receptive or more focused on the experiential but that's what the feminine is and i hadn't had any opportunity to really develop that, but I'd had all kinds of opportunities to develop the more masculine muscles, right? Of like structure and analysis. And it, is it not possible for the feminine energy to to like um, to act upon the world? I mean, it's the only way of acting upon the world. Penetrative energy. Is it not possible to engulf the world? To engulf others? you know, as a, as an active, um, energy rather than that passive receptive energy, which is how I was feeling you describing it. Right. Well, that is, that is one of the misunderstandings. Receptivity isn't passive, right? Oh. If you've ever been in a receptive practice, you have to, it only really works if you actively open to what's coming in and you learn what are the principles of opening. Ah, true. Right. And so yes. to be receptive is not to be inert. And that's a big part of the confusion. So it's like, mm. oh, the feminine is just, I go with the flow and whatever happens, mm. happens. No, I, I anchor into knowing that doesn't require that I um, act it into being. 
But the problem is we live in a world, in an economy, an economic structure where receptivity does not get paid. Um, pen penetration, right. penetration is paid work. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's my new t-shirt. <laughs> hey! <laughs> penetration pays. Oh, my God. <laughs> I love it. You're on my marketing team from now on. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in the big picture, yes. I mean, one of the things I love about this conversation is we both know it's just exploratory, right? I'm not coming in with any ultimate answers. I'm coming in with this thing that I'm constantly looking at. And on the big scale, the model is that penetration is paid work, but I also work with um, feminine-led business, sort of feminine principles of business. Mm. And it is absolutely possible to move things through magnetic energy rather than penetrative energy. Nice. All right. Attraction. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Attraction. Yeah. Yeah. So um, consciously attracting things is not, um, is not passive work. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. And that's so much of so All much right. of the the, the See, attracting. I, I can I can feel that as a, as an action. I, I have like this idea of. See, I, I'm having trouble, you know, even turning it into a verb, that recept receptivity, because receiving doesn't quite say the same thing. But I, I get it if it's if it's attraction. If it's like ah yeah all right magnet I got gotcha. you, yeah attracting. I, I can. Uh, I can, I can have that. So I'm, I'm quite verb oriented. I'm, I'm trouble with nouns. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. And the feminine is sort of in the zone of the adjective, right? It is adjective. Like what describes uh -huh. experience. Yeah, it's yeah. more tonal. It's more textural, right? Yeah. Nice. Nice. And so it's, it's this. It's like getting into the masculine and feminine of everything. Right, not just like, oh, well, you should wear dresses and you should wear pants, right? Or you should have this role or you should do this thing in the kitchen and you should do this thing. It's, it's nothing to do with those kind of new templates. It's understanding that basically in, in the field of creation, there are two forces. Hmm. One pulls, one penetrates. Hmm. You need both. Yeah. I don't know, but see when I but when I see things like the idea that feminine clothing is the more restrictive clothing, then that that's when I'm you know um, yeah that that's when I feel skeptical around that. Yeah, yeah, that you know has I mean? nothing to do um, with the feminine that I'm working with. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like a, a clothing that restricts your movement <laughs> and that's designed to hobble you in the world. I I, I don't see that as feminine. In, and in fact, any traits of femininity that's designed to limit a woman's movement and agency, I, um, I don't know, I can't accept that as, um, as feminine because, you know, it, it just doesn't align with anything in my culture about what a woman is. A, a woman is like femininity is not something that uh, limits your power, that limits your authority, agency, anything else, um, you know. Yeah. 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 So I wouldn't, I wouldn't actually associate that with um, the feminine and often femininity and the way that I use the feminine are distinct in the same, mm. 
um, at the same level that like feminist and femininity share a lot of the same level so the same letters but don't yeah. point to the same things no. right so femininity tends to be more um of sort of patriarchally um like a patriarchal edict a rule set for governance of women yeah and that's not the thing i'm talking about yeah so the feminine for the feminine clothing would be based in their own um experience their yeah. own pleasure their own knowledge base like what lets you be in most direct interaction with the environment mm -hmm. the environment you choose whatever that is right and then of course everybody's free to play dress up when they want to but there aren't any aesthetic templates in the feminine mm -hmm. right? the feminine is kind of an unlearning of all of those edicts and prescriptions yeah when you really get to it and so that has happened for a lot of women that they're like oh everything that they've associated with the feminine feels constrictive confining ineffectual and so they just start pushing away from the feminine in general mm. not understanding that um it comes with a it's not that at all and the true feminine comes with its own kind of power that is fundamentally more sustainable mm. for people who are inherently feminine more feminine identified yeah right so we can play in our non-dominant types but it has that kind of fatiguing um experience like when you're at a dinner in a second language that you're not fully fluent fluent in mm. right like you can do it but it's exhausting you can do it, but you can only do it for a, like a finite amount of time before it has impact. Mm. And so most, most women, almost none of the women that come to me have any idea what the actual feminine is when they come in. But almost all of them have an aversion to the thing that you're talking about, yeah. which is what had them um, be so resistant. And I say them, but me too, right? Mm. I grew up thinking that having more freedom, more power, more choice, um, more expansive control over my own life was, um, could only be found in kind of masculine modalities mm. and, and ways of being. And so I did my best to be a great masculine being, right? And had quite a bit of, um, disdain for what I understood to be the feminine at that point, right? What mm. I understood as femininity. What, what turned around for you? What was the, was there a catalyzing thing or was it just, uh, <laughs> yeah, people always say that's that, cause that's a story thing. You know, that's a hero's journey thing. There's always a totally. moment, a moment of realization that turns things around well, in a story, I but I find it seldom yeah. like that. It's usually like a million things over about five years. Um, but yeah, but was there, was there a catalyzing moment? There was a catalyzing moment. All right. Actually, a Fantastic. lot of moments over about five years. No, <laughs> <laughs> but it's also totally true. For me, there was like the heralding of trumpets when I came into the practice of orgasmic meditation, right? When I came into this practice of clitoral stroking 
it called me, it gave me a context to really learn experientially that reception isn't passive, mm. right? It wasn't like somebody didn't come into my head and say, okay, look, you can have this other way of being. Um, you just need to learn how to receive. I could not have done that. But with someone like sort of building the energy or stroking my body in a way that was building energy, I had to learn how to navigate and negotiate that energy. And I had to mm. learn like what makes that what makes that portal larger? What makes it more constrictive? What makes the energy that I build more available to me for use? Like I really had to get into a real lived understanding of what receptivity is. And that mm. changed the game for me. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Just how did you come into that? I mean, was, did someone hand you a pamphlet? What does that pamphlet look like? Like, <laughs> Facebook sent me an ad one day and I, oh, wow. I want to see your algorithm. That's like, actually, that's not true. It wasn't an ad. It was something that someone like that I didn't know had been like reposted by someone that I did know. And I was just like, what is this? And it was an article about it. And I thought it was going to be like these things that we have. I don't know if you have them there. Um, they're kind of like the fast food of massage and like the mm. massage therapists just wear, wear like smocks and you oh, can yeah. schedule like 30 minute or 60 minute appointments and you don't have to know anyone. There's no conversation really. It's yeah. just sort of like a, a mill for, for massage. I thought it was going to be like that. I thought there was going to be like a man in a smock and <laughs> there might be a fee and there would be a fixed amount of clitoral stroking. And I was like, that's just too weird like, like a dollar a minute or something <laughs> that, that seems fair doesn't it uh, <laughs> but it was so strange that it didn't actually come into my mind as like oh that's something you should do but yeah. what i did was i sent it to a few friends of mine that love the weirdness mm. right? And they came back and were like, oh yeah, we've done the research and this thing doesn't exist in our cities, but it exists in yours. You're new, our appointed one to go learn this thing. Oh, wow. <laughs> and for a while I was like, nah, I'm really busy. That's not a thing. And then one day it kind of hit me all of a sudden, kind of like an alarm had gone off and it was like, oh, it's time to go learn clitoral stroking. Well, there you go. Wow. So you were like, a, you were a, an apostle almost. You were recruited, not, not just a, yeah, you were like one of the 12. It's like throw away your nets and, you know, you come and be fishers of Fishers of something. Not fishers of men. Um, yeah. Kind of though. Yeah. No, but... Wow. So, you know, when I got, when I got into that, um, sort of the, like the path of that work, I often describe it as like that moment that you realize that you came from a rough, from a Russian orphanage mm. and like had forgotten your first language. I didn't come from a Russian orphanage. Mm. Um, but like, you know, that thing that's just like way back in the memory that you don't even know is there. Yeah. That, 
something triggers and you realize, oh, there's a first language, there's a native language behind the thing I've been speaking. Mm. When I came into that work, sexuality and an understanding of the feminine came through like that level deep for me. Like, mm. oh, how did I forget? How did I forget? So for mm. me, it was really important that that catalyst was so experiential. Mm. I'd done so much learning and studying up until that point that it was a whole different way of knowing. Mm. It's funny. Um, it's funny. It, it, it just feels like a process I'm familiar with, you know, that you're mm -hmm. talking about of that, that recovery of things lost. Yes. You know, um, that revitalization, that resurgence, you see it in the Celtic revival, you see it in a lot of our language uh, revival projects here in Australia um, mm -hmm. and things like that. And it's like, it's like you're walking down the beach and there's a tiny little white nub poking up out of the sand and you know you explore that and and then you know as you brush the sand away from that you find that that's a a cuttlefish um you know that do you know the things i'm talking about that wash up on the beach those sort of flat white surfboard looking things yes it's it's the cartilage out of the middle of a cuttlefish and so then yeah. you so you you carry that around and you work with that and you <laughs> finding that shape that big surfboard shape and then you know gradually like the revitalization is like you know imaginally kind of regrowing that that uh creature around that that just that little surfboard like bone until you end up with a fully fleshed cuttlefish and if you i don't know look up a youtube video of a cuttlefish you know it's amazing there's it it, it glows there's <laughs> phosphorescence going on there it, it has it has big eyes it's got these tentacles that go back and move and change and do all kinds of things it's kind of like that uh yeah to um to rebuild something that complex out of um something that starts out as just a little white piece of something poking up out of the sand um you know reconstructing that is you know it requires a lot of what's known as revealed knowledge yeah. yes i love that phrase you're taking off over there <laughs> i love the phrase revealed knowledge that feels totally true and i love working through that that metaphor right because it is like finding the core of a thing and then sort of bringing back all the fleshy details through personal inquiry. And that's what it's been like for me over the last, it's been about eight years now since I came onto this path. And then knowing how to hand other people that skeleton, right? Like that bone in the center so that they have something to start reworking from. Because the idea isn't to have like a factory made version of this understanding where everybody gets the same. Right, it's to start with like a, a different skeleton of understanding and have everybody be able to explore their way to the way that applies for them and how it particularly shapes up. Really so in the, in this way, it's um, and, and that to me it feels like that's that's your attraction principle, is that you're bringing all those pieces, every particle, every pattern, 
that you're attracting those to that uh, to that core, and and you're not redesigning it actively. Um, you're you're growing it, nurturing it in that way. Um, yeah. Anyway, I, I picked that that metaphor of the cuttlefish just now because that's that's the way I visualize the um, the biological system that you you're referring to. Mm. Uh, in my mind, as an outsider who uh, <laughs> doesn't have a, a cuttlefish. Yeah, I had to pull that up. You were like, do you know what that looks like? I said, please hold. I went into the mental archive. It took me a minute. I've never seen it in person. I've only seen a picture of it, but I, I think we're talking about the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It, so, it I mean, one of the things that, that attracted me into this conversation with you is kind of the urgency of looking at gender differently now right and how threatening that can feel mm. in the cultural context how how much resistance there is to a new way of seeing the thing how entrenched our way of understanding things like the masculine as more powerful or men as more powerful or our our um kind of developed sense of offense yeah like men shouldn't do certain things, women can't do certain things, right? And, and a lot of the analysis doesn't go to my thinking deep enough. It kind of starts from the offense. Hmm. 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 And so I love just the inquiry of, of that reimagining. I don't know, yeah. everything I just said could be wrong. Yeah, yeah, so far, that's it's, true. It's a, it's a helpful working model. Show mm. me something better, right? Mm. And I don't mean to you personally, although I'd love if you mm. would, but, you know, that's just an open invitation to the universe, right? Like, show me something better. Show me something more foundational or more fundamental that um, is more of a key to understanding mm. and I'm open to it. But right now, every time I hand this key to someone, it mm. unlocks something really profound in their life. Well, that's it. Well, because I don't think there is some thing to be shown. Like, um, this is not a thing. Uh, gender is not a thing. Sexuality is not a thing. Um, you know, your biological identity is not a thing. It's a process. Mm. It, it's an unfolding. It's an action um, in the world. It, it's, yeah, it's not a noun, it's a verb you know it's a it, it is a process and that's why it's constantly changing because you're moving through a process there um it's not something fixed and i think um when you have rules for things there is an assumption in there that it's that it's fixed um that it's a fixed thing and i think a lot of people are trying to set rules <laughs> Uh, set rules and police rules for something that is constantly changing, you know, like, you know, you can't say these are the 67 pronouns <laughs> and, and we're going to legislate them because I mean, that was, that was, I think that was like a couple of years ago, I heard people complaining about the 67 pronouns. Um, but I imagine there's a lot more by now. There must be at least three times as many as that. And there probably was at the time as well. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
Wow. Um, this is a demotic process unfolding. You know, it's like a thousand flowers are blooming. Um, you know, what I mean, what I love about the, you know, um, what I still think of it, it fixed in my mind, I go LGBTQ and then I falter because I'm, I'm not sure what comes <laughs> next um, because there's, you know, I and plus and all kinds. And, and I, I like that plus sign there because it's like, hey, this is not finished. You know, we're, we're decolonizing, you know, these sexualities. These are settler sexualities. These are, you know, really bound up and associated with imperialism. And we're allowing all these flowers to bloom. We're facilitating, attracting this blooming. And, um, and it's pretty spectacular because, you know, out of that field, out of that field, you know, begins to emerge um, what was you know, the, um, and, and what will be, uh, in all of these things. And these are not fixed identities. Um, you know, these are, are pretty exciting sort of <laughs> roles, uh, that aren't on a spectrum. Right. There. Yeah. I totally agree. They're dynamic principles, but if you want to play with them and create, it helps to understand some of the underlying principles, mm. right? Like this kind of wind means the potential for this kind of rain, right? Yeah. Like it just, it's not a rule and it's not a guarantee. It's just a principle. It's mm. a way of observing the things. Mm. Uh, I, I learned a lot of, about masculinity as a child <laughs> from Conan the Barbarian. Um, that was, that was a, 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 a movie. So. I, I think I watched it <laughs> about 50 times. But, um, you know, so what is good in life um, for a man? And, <laughs> and um, Conan's response was, was actually a, a Genghis Khan quote, <laughs> which was, um, defeat your enemy, drive him before you, and hear the lamentation of his women. That wow. Is, that's what is good uh, about being a man. All right, then. Yeah. So how's that played out for you? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not oversharing this time. Um, I, I, I was just. Uh, I don't know. I, I guess I was going to segue to how much of masculinity is has, um, um, you know, um, and not just recently, but also, you know, in the East, going back, you know, to the, um, you know, to earlier civilizations that uh, masculinity has always been a thing that's been uh, weaponized and constructed in service of a military industrial complex. Mm -hmm. um, you know, particularly you can see that, that Genghis Khan quote there. Mm. Mm. I mean, look, I think that anything can be kind of conscripted, co-opted and really, um, Oh, denatured. Oh, right? Denatured is a good word. In the service of something else. So the way that the, the masculine has been used to control male bodies mm. in the frame of um, empire or in the frame of patriarchy is not the same as the thing itself. Mm. Right? It's really, in oh man, for some reason when you said denaturing, it's sort of... Um, 
I because we were I was messing around with the flowers metaphor, uh, the word deflowering popped into my mind. Mm. That verb. Have you come across that? Ever the I've idea definitely of, heard it. <laughs> yeah. So of like virgins being deflowered. Uh huh. It's uh -huh. just I, I just I think that's a very telling word. <laughs> Get rid of these flowers. <laughs> Well, also, like at the end, you end up with less. Yeah, that's it. What? So, what does a landscape look like that's been deflowered? Oh. Uh, there are parts of the world where the plants have stopped flowering. There's entire provinces in China where uh, the plants don't flower anymore. Why is that? Because uh, the insects have all been killed. You know, because, you know, insects are harmful to people and all that sort of thing. And you kill all the insects and then suddenly, um, yeah. So there's lovely natural spaces, lots of trees, plants, all these sorts of things. But um, but they're going to die. I mean, they're, they're already dead. They're just tombstones to an ecosystem, basically. There are lots of places in the world like that. Um, yeah, you got no insects, you got no flowers. So every now and then you've got to get bit on your skin. And that's a good thing. Yeah. I was just talking to an old fellow yesterday who's like, you know, he rejoices in the, the sting of um, what we call marsh flies here. Um, a lot of people in the South call it marsh flies. Mm -hmm. like, um, there must be something seasonal in that month. But uh, marsh flies, they're also called because they're you know swampy. Um, yeah, so it's a big fly, and when it bites you, it, it really hurts, like a lot. But he rejoices in this thing of, of the marsh fly because that tells him that um, um, you can get crocodile eggs at that time. So he feels that sting, and he goes, ah, good, I can get some crocodile eggs and uh, eat those. They're yummy. You know, that's that seasonal indicator. So we have a kind of a different uh, feel for insects here. Yeah. I mean, I know this is not where you were going or I imagine it's not where you're going, but I'm like, yes, when I feel into that metaphor, it totally resonates with the um, sort of push to eradicate the masculine, right? Like yeah. there would be more space for the feminine, for women, for what's good if we eradicated the masculine and all its problems. Mm but then you actually make the system inert. Like yeah. you make the system completely infertile mm. um, and unsustainable. Mm. And so there's a way that like understanding the place that, that masculinity has, understanding um, that, yeah, there are no bad insects. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, they're, they're all doing something. There's like, it, it's all to um, like a kind of holisticness that we just don't see. We're so symptomatically driven, mm. right? Like, I don't want to be bitten. I don't want to have to have the potential to be aggressed. Yeah. Um, so there should be no insects and there should be no masculine or aggressive impulses. Yeah. Hmm. Well, look, maybe... Um maybe maybe what's what's masculine or feminine is your response to that flyby 
you know, maybe, um, maybe the masculine response, you know, which, you know, every, every being would have that in them. So, you know, even women would have, um, you know, uh, to a larger or lesser extent, that masculine energy and response there, um, you know, and, and men might have larger or lesser degrees of it as well. But maybe the masculine response to that marsh fly bite is, oh, yum, crocodile eggs. And um, maybe the feminine response is, ah, um, yeah, everybody, no swimming in the river over, the, over, <laughs> over that way for a bit. Uh, because Mama Crocodile's there with her eggs and she's going to be cranky. <laughs> huh. Mm. Maybe. Yeah, that's fascinating. I might have jumped into that same analogy upside down, right? Hey. Exactly the other way to look at um, kind of protection from the perspective of the masculine and from um, like a kind of cyclical awareness from the perspective of the feminine. So, yeah, well, but back to bit, my point. There's a bit of both in each, yeah. <laughs> Right, right. Mm. Back to my point. There's masculine and feminine in everything. <laughs> yeah, that's it. It's very hard to divide. And I think that comes back to your concept of two-ness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We can't divide it, but there is a way that, like, it doesn't have to be oppositional. Mm. Right? And, um, like, the way that it becomes complementary truly deeply complementary is in understanding Hmm. right is in um yeah that that place of integration that place where all things get to coexist yeah or need need to fundamentally coexist so is this too esoteric for people to find some healing or comfort look i I imagine um you know uh, people listening to this would be that there are parts of parts of them uh, that are just rife with with unexpressed anxiety mm. around this and a, um, an inability to find a way to express it or a um, or a sense of um, safe or protected you know um, environments where they can express you know their anxieties and and find healing there um, <laughs> So, well, I guess, what can you say? What can you say to them um, to sort of, uh, you know, uh, begin that process of healing those parts, but then also, you know, what advice might you give? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, one of the things I love to work with and love to start with is just awareness. Mm. Just, I, I work with an exercise that I call spot the driver, right? Like, can you tell which of those two dispositions is driving in you moment to moment and just see like who's driving and how does it feel just begin to observe Mm. um and i think that that's a place where everyone can begin with an understanding of this that isn't externally imposed it isn't you need to do this or you should be doing this just observe how it is So I usually have people plot their own graph over a series of points. One is when you have a day totally off, a day that's unstructured, right? Do you find yourself in your masculine or in your feminine? Do you Mm. find yourself in a space of um, expression and experience or in a space of consciousness and result production, right? Where do you find yourself? When you're on a deadline, where do you find yourself? 
when you're in a new relationship, where do you find yourself? When you're mm. in a relationship that's ongoing, where do you find yourself? Right? Just having, I love to do this live where I actually have people move in the room, right? To sort of show where they are on the continuum. And people are often surprised to find that they're more in their masculine in, in a new relationship and more in their feminine in an old mm. or exactly the opposite. Right, like there's no, there's no script for it. Mm. But there's an awareness, you know. When I work with women that find that they're more in their masculine at the beginning, um, and then often find that the partners they've chosen can't hold them, right? Mm. Doesn't doesn't feel good. Then later they're going to charge, sort of like the indecisiveness. It's because there's an element of self protection that's coming up in the beginning that has them present something different than what they actually want or what's sustainable, mm. right? And rather than coming in and be like, so in the early relationship, you should do these three things, right? Yeah. You just get to see like, oh, how do you show up? And if the reverse is true for you, as it could absolutely be, right? If you show up more in like experience and openness and receptivity in the early days of relationship, but as you are more and more reliant on that person for your well-being, livelihood, whatever, you become more structured in your thinking, more results focused, right? Then that just tells you something else about um, how you're moving and how you're operating in the world. But just to slow down and begin to see the distinctions and hey, whatever is not for you, just poop out, right? Mm. Like you only have to keep the parts of it that are actually um, nutritious, mm. that are nourishing and give you mm. something. I but please be... dispose of your poop wisely. <laughs> I mean, you know, oh. When when settlers arrived on, on their ships here and started setting up their little towns and stuff like that, mm -hmm. you know, um, and we're, we're told we're supposed to be, you know, grateful for all the medicine that they brought and science and all that sort of thing. They were just, um, they were crapping in a bucket inside and then throwing it out on the street uh, every morning. Um, <laughs> that, that was not a good system. And they, they, they weren't doing much better than that on the boats. So, I mean, when they arrived, they, they stank and they were like covered in sores and, and vomiting blood. And um, they, they weren't very well. Yeah. And, you know, the extent of their medicine was bloodletting. You know, they were, they were like, you know, opening a vein on their arm um, to let the evil spirits out. That, that, was, that was the extent of their medicine. Because uh, they, they burned all the women who actually knew um, <laughs> knew anything about actual medicine <laughs> um, in their tradition, um, as it was before. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know. I, 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 I struggle with a lot of these things. Now, I just started that story and I can't remember how I started it, what the point I was making. It always always makes me angry when I start thinking about that. <laughs> it was basically just like anything that you don't need that isn't. Oh yeah, the poop. What I'm saying. Yeah. Sorry, I, I was just I was just trying to get to throwing the shit in the street um, totally. thing. I mean, that's pretty much how 
you know, um, most civilizations have dealt with their, I mean, except the Romans, they had a bit of sanitation, like a little bit, but it all went into the river and then they ate the fish from a river that was full of sewage. And, you know, and then it'd be like, oh, why are our children dying? Um, you know, so I, I guess it was, just, it was just when you say poop it out, what you don't mean. It's like, you know, dispose of that wisely. Um, well, you know, be aware, right. be aware that one system's entropy is another system's lunch. And, um, you know, there are places you can put that stuff where it will grow good things. And there are places where you can put that stuff where it'll make other people sick. Um, right. Yeah. If we're talking exactly. about toxicity and such. Yeah. yeah. What you don't need, you don't have to throw back at us. Right. Like, yeah. do something useful with it. Right? That's something it. Generative with it. And you don't have to throw it at other people. It's, um, yeah. If another system serves you better, great. Mm. Have you rescued any incels or, or MGTOWs? Have you managed to deprogram any of them? Because that, that would be a, um, that'd be a useful, you know, thing to write a paper on, just a, a process of de-radicalizing you know, uh, those poor fellows. I mean, I think that, that we're pretty far away from each other. Um, but what I can say is, what is that thing that Freud says? Like all pathology is on a continuum, mm -hmm. right? So what people don't see when they're um, sort of um, hmm, like challenged by the intensity or the radicalness of incels or MGTOW is the way that that's expressing itself in what I'm calling the collapsed masculine, mm. right? At much closer in, much more toward what we think of as like the normal range of the continuum. Yeah. So I actually work with that because it it's um, when it doesn't go far outside, when it doesn't become like a radical outside of the system, mm. it creates all kinds of disease and disharmony within the system. And it's actually quite volatile. Mm. Right. So all of that um, self-constraint and like, constraint against expression and a sense of isolation like even if you can be in sort of touch or it's not specifically about sexual celibacy right there's a kind of um emotional uh, separation and celibacy that's happening that creates like volatility yeah. in the individuals right like it's it's connected um there's an anger that comes from having a life that's misspent, right? Mm. And it can't be expressed. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's I that uh, uh, resentment. <laughs> mm. Yeah. That frustration of the will to power, Nietzsche would call that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that's not from, you know, my, my people's philosophical perspective that will to power is not what makes the flower grow. You know, it's a will to relation. And I think most of these pathologies are um, wounds caused by um, you know, a, a frustrated desire for relation, a frustrated desire to for connection. Um, I would absolutely say that. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, potentially there are a lot of, you know, young males um, 
like I think in the United States, it's about 30% now who are, um, who've never had a girlfriend of people under 30 or something like that. Of men. You were saying it's, that to me. And that's just this insane statistic boggling. now. Yeah. yeah. And it's increased like a massive amount in the last decade. Um, like I think it was 8% 10 years ago. And yeah, now I don't know. So, I mean, and I, I, I listen to a lot of these young men online and, um, uh, I, I don't know, like I have to really suppress my scorn, you know, um, because I know that's, that's not helping them come into relation. Uh, so I try to still myself <laughs> and listen to them. And, and I do see that, that frustrated desire for connection and, um, and they do want to connect with women, but of course they can't be the bee to the flower, you know, um, they're, they're kind of, uh, I mean, I guess the operating protocols that, I mean, they believe are needed now would, you know, be that, that they have to do that attracting thing, you know, that they have to have the magnetism and they need to attract women to them. Um, whereas, you know, potentially, I mean, by the model you were saying earlier, it's, it's, it's the other way around, um, that that masculinity isn't the attractive uh, the attractive energy. It's the, uh, the energy of being attracted. And I think that, <laughs> I don't know, when you look at the, you know, when you look at the human genome, you know, geneticists, um, they've shown that, you know, the vast majority of all our ancestors um, are women as human beings, yeah. um, which sort of shows that for most of human history, the majority of males have not, um, have not mated. Most of your ancestors are female because there's only been a minority of males who have um, who have actually um, mated <laughs> with the females, which to me suggests um, that that um, the ladies are quite selective and have been for most of human history and have been um, very careful about about where that um, where that yeah how those bloodlines are constructed and how we're, you know, um, how we are developed and maintained as we go forward, that that's always been women's business, that selection of who gets born and who does not get born. Um, I know that it's, it's sort of a most uh, historians and anthropologists and all that sort of stuff would see it as the other way around, that men have been killing each other um, in, in contests in order to dominate the women and own <laughs> and own those women. And I know that's the way it's been happening in civilizations for the last 10,000 years, but I'm not thoroughly convinced that, um, that that's how it was happening before that. What's your sense of, of the human as a species and that dynamic of, um, of, you know, uh, selection, sexual selection. Just fascinating question. Mm hmm. It's, um, I mean, I think if we start to look at it from a contemporary perspective, it's super confused, mm. right? Because kind of, <laughs> I'm thinking about a line from a song that's like, everybody wants to be an actor and actor's best friend. Yeah. Everybody wants to be the selector, right? Everybody wants to be the one who is acting, the one who is penetrating, um, but I think that re reception is actually quite selective. Mm. 
back to our like receptivity isn't passive mm. right receptivity is not only not passive it's also discerning so what i'm saying feels very in line with the deeper historical model that you're talking about yeah i think um i think it's that i think it's seduction rituals and and i, I believe there's a kind of mutuality to that but then at the same time that um uh, ultimately women are the selectors um not not ultimately women are the selectors but i i think i think there has to be a mutuality um there has to be a mutuality there and that um okay so the re reason i'm thinking about that is i'm i'm, I'm just thinking about um in in my community the seduction rituals there you know so there's um i don't know there's a big body of law that's called love magic and and that's yeah the, the popular western conceptions of that is like how you um use sorcery to roofie somebody <laughs> you know what i mean that you like you know you sing a song and you basically curse somebody into falling in love with you or something like that um and, and while while such things exist that's not what love magic is love magic is the big body of law that contains all the protocols and rituals around uh, um seduction and um and love play basically um because you know um you know traditionally you're pretty much allowed to play with anybody who's from the right uh, kinship group you know um you know there isn't that kind of necessarily that enforced monogamy for men or women you know that there is that kind of love play that goes on um and it's kind of naughty and cheeky and there's lots of drama around it and there's lots of conflict around it and I don't know, it's like a really, and there's lots of story and lots of, um, you know, there's lots of fights that happen. There's lots of all kinds of like, you know, beautiful messiness. Um, that's all kind of ri highly ritualized. But I, I guess that small part of it um, around the seduction thing, there's this one part that translates as um, I love, like E-Y-E, -E, I, I love, you know, and it's, it's, a, it's around that eye contact that's made you know so um so one of the protagonists might might cast their eyes in a certain way towards somebody and then maybe that uh, and then there's a bit of a dance but that maybe those those eyes are returned and then i guess there's um there's those eyes become locked and um and i, I guess it just snowballs from there <laughs> but if you end up with two people who are making i love you know together then um you know it follows that then in a in a very socially dense community where everything's transparent they then have to play the game of um of finding a way to sneak off and and uh, <laughs> and have that play it's funny but the words um the, the there is a word for uh for all of that that kind of relation um, and that's um, the missionaries translated that the ones who who were working with Aboriginal languages uh, translated that as adultery. So I, I still see that word in um, in the dictionary for our language. <laughs> um, that word marich, um, it's translated as adultery. But um, that wasn't the original meaning of that. <laughs> right, I see the gap. Yeah, yeah. The gap, eh? yeah. 
And I, so that's, I don't know, that's a, just a bit of, um, you know, contextual detail around, you know, uh, this idea of sexual selection. Um, I, yeah, I think it's a hell of a lot more complex than any of the grand narratives that have been spun for us in, um, you know, evolutionary biology or, um, or pretty much any other field, you know, anthropology, paleontology, everybody's uh, psychology, every discipline has a theory around it. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think anybody's there yet. I have a question for you. Go on then. It's, um, you know, there's a, there's a place where I wonder if you want the, the feminine or the female to be the hero of the narrative. Oh yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, but that's just like, uh, that's just like heroin to me. For, for some reason, I, I just get such a, um, I don't know, like I always feel, I always um, feel a rush of vicarious empowerment or something. Um, yeah, when I see any element of that occurring, like I think I, I, I think uh, I overvalorize, um, you know, uh, feminine, particularly any aspect of that that carries uh, power or authority. Um, I don't know. I, it, it could just be a fetish. I don't know. But um, but I, I do certainly, it does make me feel good when I see, um, you know, and, and I'm not talking about women appropriating, you know, ideas of toxically masculine power or anything like that. But just that um, when I see something that feels demotically, organically feminine, you know, um, that's just unfiltered and, um, and just um, acting upon the world you know, in ways that lift people up, I, I feel very uplifted by that. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed that that um, sort of refrain or that tendency. And I think from where I said, even though I love the feminine, I feel maybe more neutral about it. Yeah, yeah. Like there's like a totality, there's a coming together of both of the parts being, um, intrinsically healthy and whole and able to to complement each other yeah. so like the question of like well who is the selector does that mean that like one of us is the victor like i i would probably be curious if there's like a line of mutuality that can be um sort of strong mm. in that vein yeah right? well we're, that's we're... that's the problem of that of the language of that and framing it like that even the word selection, it implies that there's a selector. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I don't know, but I, I do know that in our way that, um, that that's women's business. You know, I love that phrase. Women, women choose. Women are the ones who, who know all the secrets for you know, who's going to get born and who's not and how you maintain those uh, stable populations. Um, women have always had the medicines for, um, you know, uh, discarding you know, uh, pregnancies, um, also for controlling fertility in, you know, more uh, prophylactic ways, all that sort of stuff. Uh, those medicines exist uh, all over Australia and, and all around the world, um, you know, and have, have existed for time out of mind. Um, that's another one of those, you know, recent technologies apparently we have to be grateful for that, that women have been liberated uh, by the birth control pill. Um, and by the all these awesome <laughs> contraception and that's liberated women somehow 
recently and that you know we've had a million years before that of just basically unwanted pregnancies and yeah but um no that's not that's not the case you know historically you know in our communities um yeah and that's women's business so i don't know much about it and i can't know very much about it because that's um that's those secrets that women carry and you know they're the ones who maintain our populations as stable and also diverse they maintain the diversity um in our populations and they they are basically i guess in a way they're the selectors how is that playing out in the contemporary world? Uh, not very well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and for each generation, it's different. We have a very young population at the moment because our old people have high, high death rates and the, the, and the birth rates are just, um, you know, through the roof. Um, yeah. So, and a lot of those young fellows growing up are playing uh, Grand Theft Auto a lot too much too much Grand Theft Auto and all that kind of thing. And uh, the generation before that had its own, uh, you know, um, problematic kind of discursive diet um, of, you know, um, probably the worst parts of settler media and literature <laughs> to consume that are um, kind of the barbarian stuff. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'd say it's not playing out very well uh, at the moment. But on the bright side, because of our, I mean, at our current birth rates, our current birth rates um, in our community, and the the amount of um, Aboriginal women, which is, um, you know, I think it's just a majority, it's over 50%, who are making babies with non-Aboriginal people, um, and those children are retaining that identity, and that there's a really tight turnaround because it's very young very young females who are um, who, who are making babies and starting making babies at quite a young age. Um, well, that doesn't do well for like uh, you know indigenous girls in STEM or anything. It's it's not not having good outcomes there. Um, that the one good outcome, if you if you factor in the exponential function, is that um, it, it's only going to be a, a couple of decades before um, most of the people in Australia are Aboriginal again. <laughs> which is pretty cool it's a i don't know potentially that that's some secret women's business going on which is a a um a sort of uh a, a, a longer term and more effective land rights uh strategy <laughs> than than a lot of the native title stuff we're looking at yeah how much of any of that is conscious well that's just it it's emergent Anytime we try to design a solution where we're tinkering around in the dark, where we're making obstacles that others are going to trip over in the dark, we're, um, we're creating things that don't work or will only work for a very short time and in limited ways. Um, but it's in that demotic, you know, that what arises organically from human culture and from human interaction, you know, in a complex system. Um, you always find that the system just seems to design perfect solutions uh, as long as it's not tinkered with too much uh, over time. But I think that's an elegant solution that's going on. The only problem is it doesn't really care too much about the individuals and the individual experiences within that 
you know, sometimes the, the the greater organism of a society or a system um, is, is is a bit sociopathic when it comes to the individual experience of, <laughs> of the entities within that system. You know, in times, especially in phase shifts, it's everybody experiences some pretty horrendous disruptions. Um, and I guess that's what we're experiencing globally at the moment. And if you just look at gender, it's a um, it's a bit of a sh phase shift. And so there's a bit of pain. Um, there are going to be wounds. There are going to be pathologies there. What do you see as emergent in the zone of gender now? Uh, I don't know. Do you see anything yet? It's a new frame for me. Mm. And so I just was curious sort of mm. how. I, I think for me, I'm, at the moment, I'm just framing it as a, I don't know, um, as a, as a decolonizing sort of, uh, from a decolonizing perspective, it's just because that's the only uh, language that I have around that. So, I mean, I see all, all the sexualities and genders that we have right now. Um, you know, even, even the kind of, um, the ones that are emergent at the moment, I, I see those as settler sexualities and settler genders. And, um, and where I feel we're headed through all of the turbulence of the phase shift is towards a, um, an unsettling of gender and sexuality. Um, perhaps decolonization is perhaps the wrong term, but unsettling is a good, is a good one. It's like, uh, you know, knocking the settler, knocking the settler out of it. <laughs> um, you know, allowing it to become more fully human again. You asked a question a while back when we were talking about the sort of incel culture and uh, it was around connection and it was something like the, the deeper question is how do we come into relationship? Yeah. And that's still really sitting with me and I mm -hmm. wonder what your, your thought is on that. What is your response to that? How do we come into relationship? Hmm. I mean, yeah, maybe the it's that's that's part of the the psychotechnology that is uh, cult induction. Um, <laughs> maybe they have it more powerfully than anyone else. I mean, how do you recruit people into a cult? You know, it, it seems like you, you find people who are lacking connection, and then you give them like a super overdose, like heroin of connection. You know, you surround them with people who just absolutely flood them with love and respect and connection and that person's never felt that before and um and you get them in with that expectation that they will continue to exist within that ecstatic loop but then you break that loop and um and i guess every now and then just give them a small hit of it so they keep coming back for more like an addict and then uh yeah, you keep them in that, um, you know, basically, um, you know, looking for that next fixed, next fix. But then you, uh, I guess you attach it then a reward, you know, they, they get to experience that again, um, if they're bringing more people in. So then they join the recruiters who are, um, you know, flooding vulnerable people with love and connection for a moment, and are bringing them in that way. I think that's what attracts people to cults. Yeah. So it's kind of, um, 
I guess it's almost a kind of toxic femininity. It's a weaponizing uh, attraction <laughs> in quite a penetrative way. Um, maybe that's how cults work. But yeah, um, I guess the question was, how do you how do you make connection? I guess if you look at what they're doing there, although it is weaponized, you know, in a way to be quite damaging. Um, you look at the center of what they do, the core of what they're doing when they flood a person with love and give them that ecstatic kind of healing, you know, initially coming in. Imagine if that was something that a group of people did together in closed loops within a network where everybody was doing that in a kind of um, a, um, a continuous distributed mutuality where that, that feeling was distributed you know, throughout the community and that everybody was giving that and receiving that freely. Um, I guess that would be a way of deploying that same thing, um, but without it being weaponized. And maybe, maybe that's the, uh, that's the little system that you could establish that would uh, give that, that really good attraction um, going on. So my first thought was, okay, let's do that. And then my thought went back to what you were saying about um, the emergent system versus the solution. Yeah, that's it. Right. Yeah, I, we might both have to change our pronouns because I'm I'm just happy to um, you know, uh, just attract that and allow that to grow. <laughs> <laughs> but your immediate reaction was, let's do it. <laughs> just do it. Let's do that. Let's have it. Yeah, let's have that. Yeah. I want to have that. Yeah. Look, I tell you, I, that's that's all I want in my life. I, I keep trying to, um, you know, like I know you can't force these things. You know, you can't establish, you know, a community or a household or a family with, with a set of rules around that and, um, you know, try to hold people to it and then police it because that doesn't allow the flows. You can't design it. That's the worst thing. Um, but the absolute worst thing is that the Christ energy thing doesn't work either. You can't just go out and freely give your love and freely just pour that out of yourself into damaged people. Um, <laughs> because they, they'll just, they'll just grab that teat and they won't let go. Um, and they will consume you and they won't like you for it either. I find that people then despise you if you're giving so freely and it's something I really struggle with because um, I think I've I operated for a number of decades under the illusion that um, that that's how you get the engine started it's like when you're sucking that petrol out of the petrol tank with the hose you just have to start that suck and then you let it go and it keeps flowing and I've um, I've approached all of my relationships like that and um, and my tank has been emptied baby <laughs> <laughs> a lot of times um and and in our community which is you know originally based on a sharing economy a demand sharing economy uh, but has now moved into a lot of unilateral what we call humbug people just um exploiting that commons uh to sort of strip you know the last few people who are still sharing uh, to strip them of, of all of their resources until they die. Um, it's, it's, it's a very tricky thing, you know, in our Aboriginal communities here as, 
as well as um you know uh, in your workplace or any place you want to interact with the academy anything so i i guess you have to carry that um um will to relation as opposed to that Nietzschean idea of a will to power you have to carry that will to relation and that will to relation is the striving that makes you grow and attract things um but you have to be um yeah there are boundaries in that and you need to uh, protect yourself and those around you uh, from extraction because there are a lot of extractive little mouths in the world and very big mouths as well mm. i think you're you're on to something there i'd love to um sequester for a while and just talk about the world to relation yeah yeah with some some good mind and just kind of yarn in that spot how do you how do you generate that without running into the co-optation or the extraction mm. that you're talking mm. about but it, it feels like it feels like the spot Right? Mm. It feels like the thing that we're both talking about is how, how do we actually create whatever is coming next from this sort of fundamental um, primacy of connection and relation. Mm. That's it. Okay, well, problem solved. Maybe that's uh, yeah, enough. that's it. Maybe, well, I, I, I think, I think the hours. idea is, um, is yeah, and we might, uh, we might, we might wrap up on that one. But I like that that concept of will to relation, um, because it's not about you know um, trying to design a relationship or striving for you know I, I don't know. It's it's like you you have this will to relate. Mm. You you're not trying to uh, force a relation on somebody. Um, you're not lamenting the lack of it, but it's the thing that is powering your will um, to be in the world, uh, to grow up through the cracks of the stone, of the concrete. It's it's the thing that, that allows you to split that concrete. You know, you're just this little green seed, a little green root, but, you know, there is that power there. Um, and it's not that will to power, what Nietzsche is talking about, but that will to relate you know, to the bee, that thing that will attract the bees, attract the insects to you, you know, in the middle of that cracked footpath. And then those bees connecting you up to the other flowers and all that sort of thing. It's that, uh, yeah, that will to relate, will to relation. I think it has to be, has to be a noun to sort of counteract that, that Nietzsche's curse there of the um, will to power, because it's a noun, it's an abstract noun. So we might call it will to relation. Mm. That's been a germ of an idea that's come through a few yarns over the last week for me. Yeah. And, and I that like it. sounds like a group yarn. Yeah. Will to relation. Well, that's what we'll call this, this, this episode. That, uh, yeah. Will to relation. Love it. Yeah. Well, let's see if anybody wants to listen to us for two hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, th I think we did okay this time. And, and I think we'll have more yarns as we go along. I think we're starting. You, you go away, work on that will to relation. 
and whatever else <laughs> you were taking notes on, on there and then um <laughs> and then we'll get back together in in a month or so and compare notes again see where we where we got with it okay, maybe nowhere sorry. good anyway we'll, we'll see what we attract exactly yeah i'm in <laughs> all right thanks for the yard kianga that was thank a good you. one thank yeah. you yeah it was good that you got a chance to talk this time it was awesome <laughs> <laughs> always, always a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. Pleasure. Nice to talk to you, Tyson. Have a great rest of your day. Yay.